Welcome back to Reading for a Change, to part two of our conversation about unsaved Christians. I'm joined again by my co-host, Hannah Anderson, and by Dean and Sarah, author of a great new book, The Unsaved Christian. Uh, If you caught the last episode, you remember we discussed just how someone can be an unsaved Christian. What does that mean? What does that look like? And in today's conversation, I want to dive a little deeper and get into some of the frankly uncomfortable realities surrounding this topic. Let me ask you a question, too, about kind of the trappings of American culture, which are often very Christian, right? From, And you talk about this in the book, uh, the songs that we sing at baseball games to holiday traditions surrounding Christmas and Easter. And I got to be honest, you know, I mean, I'm not even American. Well, I'm Canadian from Canada. I've uh, been south of the border for a while. But still, as a Christian, these kind of expressions kind of warm my heart. I, I have a certain, like, nostalgia for them. Um, <laughs> so uh, my question to you, and yet I, I see how these can be things that are embraced by um unsaved Christians and almost maybe even inoculate them from the gospel because it's this sort of uh, civic religion where they fool themselves into thinking that this is what it means to be a Christian is to sing a song once in a while. Um, So do you think they're on balance? Is their impact good or bad? What's your opinion on that? Yeah, well, I get all the feels too. You know, in the baseball <laughs> game, and we sing "God Bless America," or you know, when we're uh, you know watch the the Christmas Carol, and Tiny Tim says, "God bless us, everyone." Right. You know, I, I I love those type of things, and it be, I think it could be both, and at the same time, it can really be a barrier because what really is happening in all those instances is the display of civic religion. Yes, and people are fine with civic religion as long as everyone's individual has their their line if it's gone too far. Uh, but people are fine with a little bit of civic religion as long as it doesn't declare anything offensive and it, you know, is it, and it kind of warms their heart, I guess we could say. Like when I go to a baseball game and everybody's singing in the seventh inning at the top of their lungs, God bless America, and they give a loud ovation for the soloist who's who sang the song, I'm sitting there going, Who are these people? <laughs> like <laughs> I mean, the church must be thriving in this city. <laughs> like, why why are we planting churches here? <laughs> you know, in these yeah. in these in these big areas. So it, it's civic religion on display. That, that that's all. Every presidential candidate in the history of elections and debates and speeches has always ended their speech with saying, And God bless America. It's like a tradition. It's just kind of part of the civic makeup. And that can be a big barrier to an actual saving faith. And I see it a lot on like social media too. Like my Facebook feed is full of people who obviously love Jesus and God because they're putting the memes up, right? I mean, (laughs) it's a fascinating thing to me to see how easy it is to be a Christian, quote unquote, in the United States and where there's no risk and there's no pressure involved in that sense. And it almost doesn't, um, I don't know, maybe the bar is a little too low and that's why we end up with some of this confusion. Yeah. Oh, it is. The only time right now you'll get ridiculed or any pushback on any theistic language that's very generic and neutral as you're not declaring, you know, some truth claim, you're not proclaiming Jesus is the only way to God, you know, just generic kind of things. The only time in America you'll ever get criticized is by a gun control person if you say thoughts and prayers after a shooting. That's the only thing that's out of bounds. I'm not, I'm not neutral. I'm not saying either way. I don't have, I don't have much of an opinion on that. Uh, but I'm just saying that's just an example. That's the only time, really, you'll get any pushback for generic kind of Christian language. People are totally fine with it because it really says nothing, declares nothing, means nothing. 
So I've got one last question that is, it's a tough one, I think, I hope. Um, but I'm curious how, um, I imagine many of our listeners are in ministry or they're pastors or they're, they have this same burden that you have. Um, how do you go about as a pastor? I mean, your congregations undoubtedly are mixed, right? I mean, we can't know everyone's hearts, but if this phenomenon of the unsaved Christian is real, then there are undoubtedly people within our congregations who are sitting in the pews who don't know Jesus. So as a pastor, how do you keep that in front of you as you're preaching, as you're teaching, as you're guiding the congregation? I really want to have a posture of compassion versus frustration. Uh, because I used to not be that way. And again, I still struggle sometimes. I just lose, you know, I, I kind of just lose, I guess, insight and lose focus on this. But when I finally clicked in my head, based on my own story of coming to faith, that cultural Christians actually aren't believers. I look at how God is towards unbelievers in the scripture. And what do we see Jesus have? He has compassion on them. You know, they're sheep without a shepherd. Uh, so I'm just well aware that these folks are in our congregation and in others every single Sunday. And I speak directly to them. And sometimes, you know, we're so obsessed with our culture and always talk. I say it's almost daily. Let's not be known what we're against. Let's be known what we're for. And when I read the Bible, I see both. I mean, much of the scriptures are the apostles and, you know, the New Testament epistles. They're saying not this, but that. This, not that. That's a very common thing in the scriptures. So I have to almost unpack people's, almost deprogram their cultural Christianity every single Sunday. Because that's on my mind all the time. And what is kind of the foundation of cultural Christianity? I'd say it's a, a few things. The first one is a generic or vague theism. Again, they're not atheists, they're not agnostics. The second thing is a belief that they're really good people. And the, I, we could say the third thing is they trust in their own righteousness to get them to heaven. Because whenever you go to a funeral of a cultural Christian, we're told how amazing that person was. And because of that, they're in heaven. That's what we're always told. Uh, so those are, So I try to unpack those ideas every single sermon I preach. Thank you. That's really helpful. And I think, Hannah, you're absolutely right. We're going to have these folks in the pews in our churches. And I, I think we should, you know, hopefully uh, they're coming sometimes only once or twice a year, right? And so those are really good tips uh, to keep in mind, especially as, you know, for, for church leaders um, when we're preaching, how we're presenting the gospel. Another question that that I have, and this is where it gets really awkward, I think, um, you know, evangelizing people that you don't know or barely know, to me at least, is is easier than talking to people in your own family, uh, even extended family, uh, that you know very well about your faith. And of course, I think we all have um, people in our families uh, that would fall into this camp of an unsaved Christian. Uh, so Dean, I'm wondering, do you have, what are some tips, maybe even some landmines to avoid when it comes to broaching this <laughs> uh, or talking about our faith with someone, you know, an uncle, an aunt, a brother, a sister, someone we've known our entire lives. You know, one of the biggest responses I've gotten to the book since it was released are people coming to me and saying, that's my husband. Mm. You know, that's my adult son. That's my, you know, my brother, but that's my best friend. Like I, that's, that's been a common thing I get. Like it's resonating with them going, wow, you just described my wife. You know, I'm, I'm actually hearing those kind of things regularly from people when I get feedback. And I think the, the first step is we need to maybe acknowledge that our families aren't as close as we pretend they are. Right. Uh, because if we're unwilling to talk about this, are we really as tight as we claim? 
if we're really un, un, unwilling to talk about faith, it's like, what is, we need to really kind of evaluate our family dynamic. It's okay. Are, are we really just kind of a surface level family and, and be willing to kind of be the one who tries to change that and confront that? But here's, I think, the biggest thing. Outside of the easy things to say, like be courageous, though, I know it's easy to say those things. I think here's kind of the takeaway to really remember. Make sure that you're not telling someone, even not even literally, even functionally, to be more like me. Hmm. Because a lot of times that's what translates in somebody's head is you're saying, I'm not good enough. Like you're saying they're not good enough. They need to be more at church and more religious like me. It's easy for someone to conclude that. That's kind of where their defense mechanisms go to first. So we're going, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm not saying in any way, shape, or form that I'm the standard of this. I'm saying I want to talk to you about what it actually means to trust in Christ and to be a sinner who actually believes the gospel. I'm not talking about being more religious. I'm not talking to you about going to church more. I'm not talking to you about being a better person and stopping to you know drink too much or whatever it might be. Like, I want to talk to you about Jesus. Like I've noticed that you believe in Jesus. Again, you again you send out Christmas cards and say Merry Christmas. <laughs> like I know you believe in Jesus, uh, but I'm, I'm just I want to talk to you about like what what it actually means to me, and what I'm just seeing in your life that has nothing to do with you being a great dad or a great mom or a great friend or anything like that. But I, I just want to talk about what it actually means to be a Christian, and I would just hope that our relationship is strong enough, has enough trust. That you'll give me the benefit of the doubt in this conversation that I'm not judging you. I'm not saying be more like me. I'm not the standard here. That's how, Christ, how cultural Christianity started all together is we made other people the standard. Uh, so we compare ourselves to other people. We can always find our, find you know someone a little worse than us by American standards. Uh, but when we compare ourselves to God, we fall short every single time. Uh, so I'm trying to get people to do is what I call change the comparison game. And then we realize our need before God and that God's provided the solution to our need. And that's the blood of Christ. So I think that's the key is making sure that they're not seeing you doing like an indictment on your entire family, you know, you proclaiming you're the one who knows and they don't. No, no, no. It's helping them understand what it actually means to be a Christian with you not as the center, but actually Christ. I'm telling you, that's the biggest defense wall I see set up is, oh no, you know, Uncle Bill's here and he's the radical religious guy who judges everybody. Yeah, when, when Uncle Bill's really not that radical, he just wants to talk about Jesus. So he's got to make sure that 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 is the posture of our hearts, not me, but Christ, and have that conversation. Yes, that makes a lot of and sense. And I think if you position it that way, you also are reminded that what you're calling people to is freedom, that if it is true that they are relying on their works, if their cultural Christianity is a performance of sorts to maintain this morality that, that then makes them good people, um, that's a weight on their shoulders. And while they may initially resist you <laughs> removing that weight, ultimately the goal in coming to the end of ourselves and trusting Christ is grace and freedom. And so you are inviting them into um, the gospel of life, inviting them into something um, that they've never experienced that. Um, that kind of grace and that understanding of, of Christ's redemptive work on their behalf. Hannah, that's bullseye. I mean, that, that is straight, like, on the money. They, they have no category for grace in their life because their idea of being a Christian, as they claim to be, is simply about what they do and basically having guilt management and making sure they're religious enough by whatever the standard is in their suburb of 2019, you know, in certain parts of the country. So the message of grace, they have no category for it. And then that's what makes it so incredible and why I want to have more compassion on, on cultural Christians rather than frustration, because these aren't Christians who have received the free grace of God and now are thumbing their nose at him. 
Uh, these are people who simply don't know Jesus, and that should drive us to compassion more than condemnation. And when they get it and it clicks, I'm telling you, cultural Christians, when one converts to Christ, are the greatest missionaries. Because one, it's almost like this light bulb goes off in their head and they go, oh, that's what this is. That, that's what I didn't have before. And then they begin to realize all the folks in their life who are in the same boat. And they want people to know the truth. They bring them to church. I mean, they it's, it's really neat to see. I see it happen on a regular basis. That's awesome. I love that idea of needing compassion for these people because— I guess at the heart of it, you know, cultural Christianity is a spiritual delusion, right? Um, they're, they're under a, a false and dangerous um, apprehension about their spiritual status. And I like, too, Hannah, what you said about it's not about coming to them and, oh, you need to beef up your spiritual to-do list, um, that it's it's really um, introducing them to Christ, who who is going to extend grace and forgiveness. Thank you, guys. That was an awesome conversation. I want to move into um, another segment that we call The Big Picture, and this is just where we zoom out a little bit and talk about a related topic, and uh, you'll see how it relates in a second. Um, I want to talk about nominal, the, the kind of falling numbers of nominal Christians. So um, we've seen a lot of studies recently that show that the number of um, people who identify as Christian in the United States has declined. So one big one from uh, the Pew Research Center showed that um, the numbers fell, I think it was within like a 10-year window, from about 78% to 70%. And these are just people who on a survey you know, or telephone call, are you a Christian? Yes or no? Um, so that's a significant decline of 8%. Uh, another part of the study showed that evangelicals uh, were actually doing okay, holding pretty steady, slipping only one percentage point from like 26 to 25%. And so a lot of people, when they looked at that study, they realized a lot of the people that are shedding the label of Christian come from these traditions where there are more nominal believers, okay? So not to pick on you know Catholics, but nominalism is a big problem in the Catholic Church or mainline Protestant traditions. So what we're seeing essentially, if, if, if these analyses are correct, is that in many places at least, Identifying as a Christian doesn't have the same cachet as it once did, and people are more reluctant to wear that label. My question for you, this is what I'd love to discuss just briefly, is declining, declining nominalism a good thing or a bad thing? I think there's two different categories with that. I think for evangelistic purposes, it's a good thing. Because back to my buddy from going to Northern California's conversation with me in the parking lot, it gives us a clear starting point. Mm. Like it's much easier for me to have a conversation with someone who identifies as not being religious uh, than someone who is sort of kind of right. Just because <laughs> the boundaries uh, are clear uh, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. and I've and I've heard I've heard Russell Moore from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission uh, I, I articulate really well that while it's really good for the church, there's a chance it could be bad for America just from that kind of uh, I guess across the board stability and values that civic religion can bring. Now, again, we have to be careful with that, and I think that more would agree because it can, you know, elevate nationalism to a place it shouldn't be. It should, it could elevate, uh, you know, partisan politics, all those type of things. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about just kind of that safeguard, uh, kind of across the board, uh, kind of temperature of civic religion that that elevates morality as a good thing and caring for people is a good thing. Uh, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness you yeah. know, is a good thing. Yeah. So, so I think, but, but that's, again, that's not our first loyalty. We're not of this world. Uh, so what might be good for American flourishing? We care about that. 
but it takes a way backseat to the mystery of the kingdom of God. That's a global message. And so I, I think I, for us, the I think this clear starting point is the thing that resonates in my mind the most when I hear that question is that more nominal Christianity going away allows for maybe a little more tense conversation or a little more someone who might be just completely not with you at all when you talk about religion. But again, you know where they stand. They're not pretending. It's not kind of a halfway type of deal. And for many of our folks who are listening to this who live in cities uh, with a major, I guess, more flag for a better way to put it, secularized population, uh, they might even admit with that, yeah, it's really hard. Church growth really slow out here. Uh, it can be really discouraging and frustrating at times. But the difference in being here compared to when I used to be, someone might say in the Bible Belt or in seminary, is I have a clear starting point for a conversation. We won't spend an hour trying to figure out where somebody is spiritually. They'll tell you they're not religious. Right. That that's actually can be helpful, even though it can be discouraging. Yeah. Yeah. Your thoughts, Hannah? Yeah, I was going to actually say a similar thing and echo uh, what Dean said about in one respect, it is a good clarifying thing for the true church um, because it clarifies our mission. It clarifies those who are committed to Christ, who are in his body. But from a sociological standpoint, it is never good to lose institutions. Um, And I think maybe the loss of kind of institutional um, affiliation belies a deeper reality about the fragmentation in our society. So it's not just a loss of religious morality, it's a loss of a form of community. So if people are not identifying even with their nominal church, they're also not identifying with those people. And so they're further isolated from um, what have been traditional forms of human community. So if we look at it as a thermometer, it's a really bad thing. It, It is a signal that, wow, we are really fragmenting Um, not just in our understanding of morality, but our understanding of how we go about forming community with other people. That's a great point. Yeah. And so it might be a mixed mixed blessing is what I'm hearing from you, um, that it makes the the conversations a little clearer around faith. The truth is, I think, um, and it is refreshing. I I, I was in Wheaton for eight years, which is kind of a Christian mecca of sorts, um, and it was it was kind of refreshing to be surrounded by Christians and hear Christian music playing in restaurants, and um, and yet you ran into a lot more cultural Christianity. And when I moved out to Portland, Oregon, uh, it was refreshing in a different way because when you talk to people, there's no pretending that you know th- they'll be outright hostile towards Christian faith. Uh, but at least at least you can have an honest conversation about it, I feel like. Um, and yet when I think about it too, I think that just statistically, a person who is a cultural Christian probably has lower barriers, I would say. I may be wrong, and Dean, you can correct me, to coming to faith than say someone who is an atheist. Um, or they maybe are more likely to be open to hearing the gospel. Uh, and so, and, and I hate using terms like this, this is like a crass marketing way of putting it, but the church's warmest market, I feel like, are people that still have a modicum of respect, at least, for Christianity, for the idea of God, for Judeo-Christian ethics. So, yeah, I'm, I'm torn because I, I see the benefits 
to having that clarity because I think it purifies the church as nominalism declines. At the same time, I guess what I'd really love to see is nominalism decline because more people are sharing their faith with nominal Christians and they are then coming into the church. I guess that would be the best. Uh, <laughs> That's the hope. Yes, that <laughs> yeah. is the hope. There's a book written. There is, and you can get it, and it's a phenomenal book. (laughs) Uh, No, and honestly, Dean, that's why I'm so grateful for this book, because um, it's just so well-written. It's punchy. I had the honor of of working on it as one of the editors, so I'm biased, but I'm telling the truth. It's an excellent book. Um, I really commend it and urge everyone to get it, especially if there are those people in your life that fall into this camp that really need the gospel. Uh, This book will help you do that. Um, in a better, more effective, more faithful way. Um, okay, we got a couple more segments left, and this one's weird. I'm just going to be honest. There's, I'm, I can't even do a segue to this. Okay, so we have a little segment that that we're calling "That's Odd," where we talk about something that we've uh, seen pop up in the culture or the church. Um, so today, on Twitter, and and I realize this is probably going to come out in a couple of weeks, so it may be a little dated by then. That's okay. People will still be talking about it. Union Seminary, which is a, a traditional mainline progressive sort of seminary, uh, tweeted a picture from their chapel. And the picture um, was of some students and professors, it looked like, gathered around a bunch of potted plants. And one student was sitting cross-legged in front of the plants. And this is what they wrote. They said, today in chapel, <clears throat> we confessed to plants. Together we held our grief, joy, regret, hope, guilt, and sorrow in prayer, offering them to the beings, the plants, who sustain us, but whose gift we often fail to honor. And then they asked the question, what do you confess to the plants in your life? Now, I got to admit, I had some fun with this. Um, Seems a little silly. I'd love to get your input. What do you think about confessing to plants? One, I hope our first reaction is is the laugh, and then to kind of like inside cry. You don't know whether to laugh or cry. Well, I mean, again, I don't want to be like that guy of like, I'm right, you're wrong all the time kind of thing when we talk about anything of like maybe a different persuasion of Christianity. Uh, I think there's definitely different tribes. This is not one of them. (laughs) This is not that. Uh, This is just distinctly uh, not Christian and is the... Maybe not even an extreme example. Maybe it's exactly where we're headed, especially in the in the far left progressive seminary. And I don't mean politically at all by that. I mean theologically. Uh, this is the outcome of anything goes. And why wouldn't you eventually, you know, confess to plants? And the only thing I ever confess to my plants is, oh, you need to have your grass needs to be cut and you need to be trimmed. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's just a very again, and, and how we should care for creation and care about the environment, that is not even this conversation. Right. right. And we don't want to discount that, right? Creation care. Yeah, but I, yeah. Think, I think it's okay, too, like, to call things foolish because they are. <laughs> and and, and that, this would be an example of, of, of what that is. Like, there's there's a way to just shake your head and go, wow. And then hopefully that us believing it's foolishness will will lead us to hope that God does something in those people's hearts and points them to something else because how, how troubling. They call, it, call it a seminary as well is, well is just bizarre. My problem with it, to be perfectly frank, is that it seemed like very half-hearted repentance. Uh. I mean, if you look at the picture, these plants are still potted. <laughs> they had been brought indoors. There is this small amount of dirt scattered around what looks like a linoleum floor, some kind of man-made... Um, you know, flooring. 
And I just thought to myself, if you're going to confess to the plans, I mean, if you're going to repent, repent all the way. I mean, like, (laughs) go outside. Let's be all in, you know? Like, really repent of your sins to the plans. Like, this is just, this is cheap grace. Like, if I ever saw cheap (laughs) grace, this is cheap grace. Like, keep the plant in a plastic pot. Keep it inside. That's not repentance to the plant. I mean, you've got to go. Yes, that's That's right. Yeah. My my old high school, I'm still really involved in the football program, uh, just switched to a turf field instead of grass. And I felt incredibly judged when I saw that picture of them confessing <laughs> to the plants. They were singling us out. <laughs> they were subtweeting you. I mean, if you're going to do it, if you're yeah, going to repent to the plants, go all. Go all in with it. None of this half-hearted stuff. I love it. That is a hot take, Hannah. They didn't go far enough. Okay. I <laughs> We got you on the record. They're also paying to. They're also paying tuition to be a part of the school. I know, and that's a sad thing. I mean, this is the seminary of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? I mean, isn't that where he taught when he came over to the states? And um, yes, it is definitely a more progressive liberal seminary. Uh, and yet, I think some of uh, the great professors who taught there would maybe roll over in their grave if they saw this. But that's my opinion. Um, okay, final final thing here, Dean. Um, we always ask uh, the guests about a book that really made a big impact on them. And and you can't say the Bible, just to sound spiritual, even though you're a preacher. Um, so yeah, what, what's a book that really had a, a formative influence on your life and your thought? I would say The Holiness of God by oh, R.C. Yeah. Sproul. Uh, again, I was raised mainline Protestant, did not hear the gospel until I went to a Fellowship Christian Athletes camp as a teenager. So I had zero categories for who God was. Um, he was kind of big guy upstairs, you know, maybe a, a good luck charm, imaginary friend, uh, things like that. I never had any you know, context for who, who God actually is. And my uncle, who is an evangelical, um, he wrote me just for my birthday, sent me a card in the mail and a package. I was 18 years old, 18, 19 years old. And it said in the a little note, it said, Dear Dean, happy birthday. You are ready for this. And it was a copy of R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God. I never read a Christian book in my life. The only books I had read were books I was required to for class, you know, like in, in school. And I read the book and it completely rocked my world. And that was, you know, years and years and years ago and uh, over 20 years ago. And now it's one of the first books to this day that I still recommend to people and get in front of them. So it gave me an idea of who God was. And when you get an idea of who God is, then you're that much more amazed and in awe of the good news of the gospel. And, and that's what that book really did for me. So I'm forever thankful for for R.C. Sproul, who's with the Lord now, uh, for, for writing that book and how it awakened me to who God is. And as a result of that, how incredible his love for me really actually is. And I give it to college students to this day in our church and others who want them to read it and understand this book and know it. And they're all blown away by it every single time. So that's definitely, I mean, when, when you ask me that question, that's the right out of the gate there's not even a close second (laughs) in terms of the time of my life that season what i needed what i was missing i'm really thankful my uncle who still influences me uh, for christ to this day in my discipleship uh, that he would send me that book and and say i love how he worded that you're ready (laughs) let's go man and what a story about how how a book can be instrumental in that way and a gift um and to yeah say to a young man you're ready i love that You're ready. You're ready. (laughs) Amazing. Oh, that's great. Okay, well, I think we've come to the end of our time here. Thank you so much, Dean and Hannah, for the great conversation. Um, I know people will will find it challenging and enlightening and hopefully helpful, especially as they they reach out to to people that fall into this category of being cultural or unsaved Christians around them. Um, I just want to give a quick plug for our next episode. We're going to be talking to Dan White Jr., 
who's written a book called Love Over Fear. I think it's a very timely uh, message, especially in our, it's almost become cliche, but very true to say our hyper-polarized moment. Uh, So join us for that. Thank you for listening. Until next time, keep reading. Thank you.